This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. It was a beautiful spring day. A week ago, Friday, our family was headed to Indianapolis. We were going to go watch some soccer, play some soccer Friday and Saturday. It was a tournament. Uh, Our older two were in a tournament. Jackson and I, my youngest, we were traveling along second car. We were caravanning because we're going to come back on Saturday so we could be here on Sunday morning. Beautiful day. Beautiful day for a drive. And you know the trip from here to Indy is not long. It's not far. Easy piece of interstate. And we're just moving along, enjoying. Jackson and I were probably listening to something on the radio, maybe busting out Journey. Who knows? We're just, we're enjoying, enjoying the trip. Nothing in our way except my wife and her car. And nothing in my wife's way until an owl that at that moment decided it was a rhinoceros decided to barrel into the front of my wife's car as we're driving down the interstate at near the speed limit. It came out of nowhere and it wailed on the front of her hood and at that point becomes same kind of a gymnast, somersaulting, flipping, cartwheeling, and then landed on the ground, stood up, gave my wife a dirty look. We kept on going. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of heat in that moment. What just happened? And we kind of pull off eventually and we look at the front of the car and there's this little bit of a dent where this owl who thought it was a rhinoceros hit the front of my wife's car. Well, my wife, going to call the insurance company, calls up the insurance company and begins to relay the story. And I couldn't have handled it as well as she did because they asked my wife, well, whose animal was it? It was an owl on the interstate. Whose owl was it? And my wife said it was God's owl. <laughs> and because it was then considered an act of God, and you can use that maybe in other, other situations, you know, insurance is going to pay for it. What is interesting maybe to you, but I knew as soon as I watched it, My wife did not swerve. My wife did not dodge. My wife hit that owl with everything that she had. (laughs) Because she was taught to do so. So the story really begins 25 years before this as my father-in-law, her dad, is teaching her how to drive through the hills of western Pennsylvania. We have signs that say deer crossing. Deer don't know what those mean. They'll hop out in front of you whenever they want to. And you need to understand, you don't dodge for deer. You don't swerve for deer. You hit the deer. Because to do otherwise, you'll probably be doing more damage to yourself in the car. It's a life skill that he passed on to her. So when that owl popped out, she goes into deer mode. Absolutely, yes, this is happening. And then, because my wife is a good mom, she had a teachable moment with our son, who is also learning to drive. We don't swerve for owls who think they're rhinoceroses. We don't break. We hit them. Because why? 
you could do more damage. You could do more damage. It's a life skill. That's all. It's just a life skill. You have life skills. Things that people pass on to you earlier in life. Hey, this is how we maneuver life. This is how we balance a checkbook. This is how we do laundry. This is how we cook dinner. These are the things that you need to know so that you can maneuver life. Of all life skills, which one's the most important? Some life skills are more important than others. So which one would we say is the most important? If you're going to maneuver life and everything that comes flying at you, rolling at you, comes towards you across your path, what life skill is the most important one? If you can read over my shoulder, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus' disciples ask him that very question. Having watched Jesus, followed Jesus. Lord, teach us to pray. That's interesting. Because as you comb through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you look over that, they really don't ask him questions like that. Save but this example. If you were a follower of Jesus at that time, if you were walking with him three years, two years, whatever it was, you would see incredible things, right? You would see people brought back to life. You would see people healed. Given the opportunity and you could ask Jesus, hey, teach me how to do that. What would you ask to learn about? How about the stunt with the feeding the 5,000s with the couple loaves of bread? That'd be a neat skill to get a hold of, right? Right? Hey, Jesus, you just fed 5,000 people. Teach teach us how to feed 5,000 people with a loaf of bread. That would be helpful, Jesus. Went to the wedding. He took water, turned it into wine. Jesus, can you teach me how to do the whole water to wine thing? Because that would be really popular in the neighborhood if I could pull that one off. Jesus, could you teach us how to do that? How about the, the fish? The, the fish that had the money in it. Do you remember when he tells Peter, hey, Peter, I want you to go out catch a fish and that's how we'll pay our taxes. Bill, right? Could you imagine? Sweetheart, I need to go to work, which means I'm going to go fishing and I'm going to catch the fish that's got money in it. Jesus, could you teach me how to go fishing so that I can catch fish and the fish has the money in it? Will you teach me how to do that one? Can you teach me that? Of all the things that they watched Jesus do, here is what they ask him. Jesus, we've seen all of this. We've followed you. Will you teach us how to pray? Why do you think that is? There must have been something in Jesus' life and habit that connected the dots for them. So much so that if it was somebody who needed fed, someone who needed healed, something that needed taken care of, something that needed to be taught, no matter the question, the answer was prayer. that watching Jesus' life, the disciples say to him, hey, 
Will you teach us to pray? There are two places in the Gospels where Jesus gives his followers a model for prayer. One's in Matthew chapter 6, which we're going to drill down on together for the next five, six weeks. And the other one, which I just loosely referenced, which is in Luke chapter 11. And they are very similar. There are some differences. Like, oh, the Bible is not real. Look, there's contradictions. No, 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 no. That's not what that's saying. What it is saying is, wow, clearly this is something that Jesus taught a lot in a lot of different situations in a lot of different places. Then he comes up to be like, hey, let me teach you to pray. Hey, this is how we pray. This is what we say. It's simple. It's concise. Every single word is intentional. Every single word matters. And it really flies in the face of what many of the rabbis of the time would have been teaching their disciples because it is simple and it is concise. It's something anyone can do. And so for 2,000 years, we have heeded this command. When Jesus says, when you pray, repeat this. That's what it literally means in Luke chapter 11. When you pray, repeat these words. For 2,000 years, when his followers have gotten together, we repeat and pray these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. For 2,000 years, we have done this. That means when we think of this prayer, there's a historical weight to it. We've done this a lot and continue to do this. There's a precedence about it. You know what the word precedence means? I was, I was watching uh, some court proceedings this last week. I was down in Dayton, down at the courthouse. I was watching something. And it was, we, we, kinda, we were supposed to be there at a certain time, and we were all there at a certain time. And as people walked into the, uh, the, the room, there was the big bench up front, and there was the, the big great seal of Ohio there. There was the bar. Okay. We talked about clearing the bar, getting past the bar. Passing the bar, that's the bar that it's being taught. There's the, the, the defense attorney. There was the, you know, the prosecutor, the other people involved. Everyone is walking in. There's a sense of quiet. There's a sense of stillness. The clerk for the court told everyone, hey, please rise. This court is now in session. Three judges came out, took their seats up high on the bench. Everyone's quiet. Everyone's still. And I noticed through the course of the interaction as the prosecution was making their statements, as the defense was making their statements, repeatedly the defense would say, hey, if you recall, in this case, this is what happened. And in this case, you decided this way. And when this similar situation came up, this is what you did. Appealing to precedents. They said, hey, in light of those things, this is how you should respond here. For 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have recognized no matter what flies across, this is how we respond. This is how we pray. There's a historical weight to this prayer. Something that Jesus commands us to do. But also, 
the church has recognized because this is so foundational, this should be something that's taught to new followers of Jesus. How many of you come from a church tradition that understands the term catechism or catechesis? Some of you, okay. Some of you come from those church traditions where there was in the beginning phases of a young follower of Jesus or someone who's just come to faith, a season where we need to impart certain things so that you can thrive as a follower of Christ. I mean, if you don't know anything about the game of soccer, we're a soccer family, there's certain things that you need to know if you're going to be on the field, right? All right, this is in bounds, this is out of bounds. This little round thing's got to go in that box down there. They're going to come against you. You need to move the ball, use your feet. That's okay. Now you can participate in the soccer game. Am I allowed to pick it up? No, don't pick it up. You have to use your feet. So it's not like football. No, it's not like football. In football, you use your hands, in soccer, you use your feet. Okay, I can now maneuver that game. The Lord's Prayer has been recognized for 2,000 years as something that every follower of Jesus needs to understand. It's foundational to their faith. They would teach the Lord's Prayer. They would teach creed. In January and February, into March, as a church family, I walked us through what we call the Apostles' Creed. Some of you are very familiar. Some of you that you never heard it for the first time. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we spent time going through each of those tenets of theology. Are there other things that are important to the faith? Yes. These are foundational things that you need to understand. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The church has historically taught those things. And so we did creed. In the fall, we're going to teach the Ten Commandments. Like Charlton Heston, let my people go. No, but the Ten Commandments as a way of life. There's an ethic. If you follow God, then you're supposed to act a certain way. We don't lie. We don't kill each other. There's no murdering. We don't steal. We honor our parents. We don't carry God's name in a vain way. We don't put other gods before him. And so through the course of the year, I've been trying to impart these foundational things. We've done creed. We'll do 10 commandments here this month for the next five, six weeks. We're going to talk about the Lord's prayer as a life skill. Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. Truth, creed, way, 10 commandments, life, prayer. So if you will, take your Bible and open up to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 9 through 13. 
Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And we're going to read it. Ryan's going to bring it up on the screen. And this is going to be in the English Standard Version. Some of you who grew up uh, rehearsing and reciting the Lord's Prayer might have learned it in a different tradition. Uh, If you could just honor us in this moment, and we're going to read it together out of the English Standard Version. Go ahead, Ryan. Read with me. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In your notes, let's look at one part of that today. And that's the first phrase. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So if you're taking notes, there's just that one filling at the top. But from there, let's, let, let's make some observations together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's see what these words mean, because every word matters. Our Father. If you look at the Old Testament, there's roughly a half a million words in the Old Testament. Half a million words. Of those half a million words, the reference to God as Father is only there 15 times. It is there. It's an important image and metaphor that God gives to help us understand how he relates to his people, specifically his people Israel. But it's only there 15 times. Something interesting happens when we get to the New Testament. Because if you count it up just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God as Father is listed 170 times. Something shifts and happens in how God has revealed himself because of the work of Jesus Christ. There's a different level of something that has happened. And it's understanding what it means that God is Father. If you go back to January when we taught Creed, and you can go to whoishousefromtherock.com and listen to these, it starts, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. What does that mean? What are we saying? It says Father, but you know, I had a bad relationship with my dad. Can I say mother? Is it okay to pray our mother in heaven? Well, depending on you know, where you are culturally or what you read on Instagram or face chat or tweet book or whatever little platform you like to use. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, if you don't like using father, then using mother is fine. No. That's not what it says. Because to say father is to say something that saying mother doesn't say. Mother receives life. Father is source of life. Right? The mother receives. We talk about conception and the birth of life. Father is source of life. And so when we approach prayer, Jesus from the beginning says, let's recognize and remember that God is the source of all life. 
and that there's a goodness about him. The Lord's Prayer happens in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus comes as new king to establish new kingdom, to counteract, to, to conquer all that is sin and death. And as any good king would, here's my kingdom. This is what it looks like. This is the ethic. This is the way of life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart. They're going to see God. He unpacks his way of life. What it looks like to live in his kingdom. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is this prayer. Where he's teaching us how to pray. And he anchors it in the goodness of God. But a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, he goes on to say this. This is Matthew 7. This is after he teaches the section on prayer. And I just want to read it for you. You can look it up if you want. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Jesus says this. Ask. It'll be given to you. Seek. You'll find. Knock. It'll be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. For which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who's in heaven, I think that sounds like the prayer, Give good things to those who ask him. Because God is the source of all life. Father is giver of life. Father is goodness. Gives good things. I live in a life of chaos and hell on earth and death and disappointment. My father comes into the world, sends his son to counteract all that is wrong. To pray, Father, is to recognize his goodness. And that it's a gift that I can engage him that way. He says, I want you to call me that. I want you to call me Father. It's good and it's right. I tell my sons all the time, three people in the world get to call me dad. And you're one of them. Because that communicates something. I say to them, I'm so thankful that you're my sons. And I pray that they're thankful that I'm their father. But part of the goodness and the grace of God is the provision. He says, you can call me father. You should call me father. It's right that you call me father. It's a gift. And so when we collide with culture that's very resistant to these terms, what should we do? Well, I had a bad experience with my dad. My dad was abusive. My dad abandoned me. So for me, it's hard to say father. So I would prefer just to say mother, please, because my mom was nice. I understand that and I hear that. But the right response isn't to let evil conquer you and succumb to that temptation. The right answer is to speak truth into that. This is what father really is. And to live in obedience to that. Faithfully practicing that. We're not saying that God is gendered. God is male. God is female. No. He is father. 
He's source. He's good. Our Father is how the prayer starts. We ask ourselves, what did Jesus' work accomplish? What did he do up there? Jesus died so I can go to heaven. That's a good response. If you grew up in an evangelical tradition, how many of you have heard that, right? Jesus died on the cross for my sins so I can go to heaven. Everyone say yes. That is an answer. Yes, that is good. That is right. That it's true. It's a whole lot bigger than that. Jesus came to create an us. An us. Who follow God. A family. Our Father. Forgive us our sins. Give us our daily bread. Lead us through our temptations and trials. Deliver us from evil. There's a corporateness. There's an usness. There's a community that's about this. Community, not uniformity. We like uniformity. Everyone here, admit it. You want to go to a church that's just like you, right? I mean, how many of you have a club or a bar or a workout group? They dress like you. They eat like you. They do the things that you like to do. We like that. Why do we like that? Because we're narcissists and we like us, right? And so we want our own narcissistic church that reflects our own narcissistic loves. Let's just be honest about it. And so anytime I go to church, I expect to see people walking my way, eating my way, talking my way, singing my way, reading the translation of the scriptures that I like with their hair cut the way I like it. Because I like me. That's not true. It's 100% true. Some of you right now don't know what to do. Some of you love the fact that I have blue jeans on, but you also have a sport coat that makes you a legalist. And I, I've, I've seen pastors who are legalists. And so I don't know if I should like you or hate you right now. But some of you are like, he's got a sports coat on and he's preaching God's word in God's pulpit. And that's right. But he'd be wearing jeans and that's against the Lord. Right? And so you don't know what to do. So right now everyone hates me. And I'm okay with that. God's creating an us. An our. That means I am called to pray in such a way that I'm part of community. With people that see things differently than I do. And have experienced things differently than I've experienced them. Who understand and believe things in a way such that their life is still oriented towards Jesus. But it feels at times like we're in opposition. I, I like to use the metaphor of a bicycle wheel. With all of its spokes. Right? As long as we keep Jesus in the center. It might seem at times that we're coming in opposite directions. But as long as we keep moving towards Jesus. We're going to keep moving closer together. Does that make sense? We're invited into community. And then that means there's an access there. An access that does not depend on your skin color, your, ex, your, your social economic status, um, your orientations and your likes and your dislikes. There's an open accessibility there 
that's very consistent with the church that we see in the New Testament that was constantly colliding against one another. Jews and Gentiles trying to figure it out. I told my wife across the dinner table, I said, you want to do something really stupid? Plant a church the way I do it. Plant a church where Baptists and non-Baptists and Methodists and non-Methodists and church people who know lots about stuff and people who don't know anything about the Bible all get together and try to love God together. You know how dumb that is? Because it's a crazy nut job when you get us all together. Because we all want things our own way. But boy, I sure think it's biblical. And I think it's worth fighting for. I think it's worth dying for. Because there's an accessibility to the Father as we learn how to love one another. That's where we're going to go this summer. This summer, it's going to be the summer of love. Some of you are like, oh, this is not a good idea. <laughs> this is a very good idea. Because do you know what love is? Most people don't. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envy or boast. Not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice in what is wrong, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things, believes all things. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know why we need to be in 1 Corinthians 13? Because we are in us. We're in our, our father in accessibility. If you look in Galatians chapter four, Galatians chapter four, this is how the apostle Paul continues to teach on these likewise ideas. Our father in us-ness to the community. In Galatians chapter four, he says this, verses four through six. When the fullness of time had come, Galatians four, verse four, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So let's think about that for a second. He's talking about community. He's talking about an usness. And he says, the usness is so important that we learn to walk in it. One of the things that my spirit is going to do that indwells you, it's constantly going to cry out inside of your heart, Abba, Father. Abba means daddy. It's going to be hard for you maybe. But I'm going to divinely resource you in such a way that we together will call upon our Father. There's a leveling of humanity in this prayer. It does not care about your race. It does not care about your economics. It does not care about your, what has happened in the past or what will happen in the future. There's an open accessibility that says, here is the doorway. Enter all in and be heard. A little bit earlier than this, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul leads into what I had just read. He says this in, in Galatians 3, 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
So we must anchor ourselves when it comes to prayer in the reality that we are in us. Well, they like to wear skinny jeans and I like to wear pleated pants to church. That's okay. That's okay. We're in us. We're learning how to love each other. Oh, they like to cut their hair short and I think the hair should be long. That's fine. I don't have any hair. I think it's wrong to eat pork and they like pepperoni. That's okay. That's great. We're going to learn how to love each other because love is patient and love is kind. I like Bill Gaither. That's all right. That's fine. But they drive a Chevy. Well, then we'll kick them out. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. No, I'm just kidding. An usness. Our Father. Our Father. Where? In heaven. What does that mean? To pray, our Father in heaven. We are prone to think geography, and that's all right. But let's be honest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count to three, and at three, I want you all to point to heaven. Ready? One, two, three. Up, right? But let's think about that. Is God anchored in geography? Is God a part of the metaphysical furniture of the universe? No, he's not. And so that's not what scripture is communicating to say that God is father. It's to say that God is other. God is in his space as much as our finite minds need to try to wrap ourselves around that. I can't go to a box and say that's where God is. He's otherness. He's outsideness of that. And that's important to remember that God is otherly. Because if you can put God in a box and in a place, well, a box has limits. And that would mean that God is limited. We don't follow and serve a God of limits. Yesterday, I got the hard phone call that a couple um, from our church family was in a car accident. These phone calls happen. A mother, a daughter, they're okay. A long road to recovery. But God is gracious. God is kind. Had a chance to be with the husband in the hospital yesterday. We're just sitting there doing what brothers do. Just, we're hanging out. We're just sitting. I stayed for a while and I came home. And I got the word that the wife was getting ready. She'd been prepped going into surgery. She needed surgery for her back. So I called him. He says, yep, she's, just, she's going back. I said, okay, let's pray. And I told him, hey, I'm, I'm just, I was getting ready for our, our message tomorrow. We're teaching on the Lord's Prayer. And, and it starts, our Father in heaven. Boy, is that so important to remember. Because that, that, that reminds me and that reminds you that our father was at the crash site. And our father was in the car. And our father was in the ambulance. And our father is in the surgical room at the table. And our father's with you in the waiting room. 
and our father's with me 40 minutes away because our father is in heaven. He doesn't have limits. When I crash into my limits, my father's beyond that. And he's over that. And when you encounter your limits and when you crash into your barriers and you hit your obstructions and you encounter your challenges, our father can be in all of that. And he is in all of that because our father is in heaven. There's also an interesting tension in that, isn't there? In Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter three, the writer says, You are God in heaven and here I am on earth. I will let my words be few. Meaning, I will respect and revere the God that you are. And yet I'm admonished to come before him with boldness. Because he's father. He's father in heaven. Which leads us into the last part of that phrase. Hallowed be your name. What does that mean? What does that mean? Hallowed be your name. Well, if you've been journeying with this for about 18 months, I took the Lord's Prayer and I gave it a little bit of a twist. And some of you have really been struggling with it every single Sunday when we pray it because it's not what you learned. For instance, how have we been praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, be glorified in our lives. Why? Well, because that's what it means when we say, hallowed be your name. For something to be hallowed means that it's revered, it's honored, it's respected, it's given status. It's given a, a priority. If you go to Gettysburg or you go to Antietam, you go to uh, other places where great battles have happened or what I call thin spaces, places of geography that have a sense of weight to them. Take, take Gettysburg as an example. If you go to the National Cemetery at Gettysburg and you get there around the right time of day, there will probably be an, an actor who will deliver the Gettysburg Address as Abraham Lincoln did. Just a few months after the Battle of Gettysburg. Not a long speech. Takes about two and a half minutes to read it. It's about 200 words. It's hanging up in my office. It's a nice reminder to me that you can say a lot of things in a very short period of time. Some of you say you should probably listen to yourself when you say that. But within that, Abraham Lincoln says this. We cannot hallow this ground. What does he mean? He's saying it is beyond our capacity. They who bled and died and sacrificed, they have hallowed it. They have made it a sacred space, a revered space. And this is what it means to approach God. And to seek God and to pray before God is to realize this is one who is to be hallowed. God draws Moses up on the mountain. Sees the burning bush. There's a burning bush. I need to go check that out. It's burning, but it's still burning. Like it's not being consumed. I got to go check out this bush. And he gets closer. What happens? Moses, Moses, take your shoes off. The place you are standing, this is holy ground. This ground is different than that other ground. And it's to be 
approached a certain way, received a certain way. God, your name is to be hallowed, meaning your reputation. The name of God. God, you are to have a good name. I am to live my life in such a way that your reputation receives glory and praise. I should not defile your name. I should not belittle your name. Your name should be given the weight that it deserves. One of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Right? What's that mean? That means no cussing. That's not what it means at all. Oh, good. No, don't take that too far. Okay. <laughs> what does it mean? It means do not carry the reputation of God in a way that has no value or weight. Your life, when he's speaking to Israel, you should act in such a way that the name of God and his goodness rests upon you and your life reflects that. When other nations look at you, Israel, they should see something different. That you tell the truth. That you honor your parents. You don't murder. You value life. There's a way that you handle time. There's a way that you handle resources. That applies to us today. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, may your life be glor- may you be glorified in how I live. I call myself a Christian, a follower of Jesus. God, in the choices that I make, marriage, employment, purchasing, eating, talking, intimacy, parenting, you name it, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. May your name be hallowed. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a passage that we read. Um, Doug walked us through. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14, 15, and 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to what? Your Father who is in heaven. It's almost like it all fits together, right? Like it like goes together. So Jesus, disciples come and teach us to pray. And he begins the prayer by saying, when you pray, you need to recognize and reflect on the divine character of God. Your prayer life, that which is real life, begins by recognizing who God is, what God is, and what God is doing. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I want to help us remember that. So we're going to take the prayer and we're going to build it into a shape. Okay. So in the bottom of your notes, you see a hexagon. The very top of that hexagon, the very first aspect of it, I want you to write the word character. Just to help you, the Lord's Prayer, we're going to look at it in six parts as we go around this hexagon together. We'll look at subsequent parts next week and following. But to begin with, we want to remember that prayer starts with the character of God. 
our father. There's a goodness about him, but there's also an otherness about him. He is over me. He is over creation. He's the giver of life, the source of life for all things above and below. And my life should respect and honor and revere that in how I live. So maybe that'll begin to help us remember the prayer. But also a way to help us remember the prayer is to actually memorize the prayer. Some of you are like, I can't remember anything. Dude, you can sing all five verses of whatever it was when it popped up on the radio last week. Dude, you can memorize things. But to begin this journey, what I want you to do is when you wake up, whether you're a first shifter, a second shifter, or a third shifter, whatever the beginning of the day is for you, I want you to anchor that moment by reading the Lord's Prayer. I ask in this season that you do it from the English Standard Version because that's what we're going to be doing up on the screen. Okay, that'll help us maneuver some of the challenge. Well, I like to do it in the King James. It's fine. You can do it in the King James. This is a culture and context of love. I am asking you because we're an us and not a me. Let's do it this way together, please. Okay, because some of the words are just nuanced a little bit differently in various translations. But also do this. I want you to share with someone once you've done it. Give yourself a prayer partner. Simple as this. Hey, prayed the Lord's Prayer. Just letting you know. Did you do it? Hashtag character. Okay? Just wait. Get yourself a prayer partner. Could be a spouse. Could be someone that you're already in a discipleship relationship with or an accountability partner. But someone that can help you stay committed to that discipline and you can help them stay committed to that discipline. Okay? Do that together. Do that together. Hey, I did my prayer. Hey, I did my prayer. Hey, I did my prayer. Let's do that every day. If you look on the back of your notes that you received, this is the message guide that's inside the notes. Okay? On the other side from the hexagon, there's a little box in the place where you can check a box. Love checking boxes. Who doesn't love checking boxes, right? I accomplished something. I did something. You can check the box. I prayed and I posted. Hashtag character. Okay? Please get an accountability partner. Well, I'm an introvert and um, I don't like talking to others and no one's going to ask me to be their prayer partner because no one likes me. And so I think your idea is stupid, Paul. Well, I think you can do this one. I really do. So I want you to go up to someone. If you can't find anyone, you can ask me, Pastor Paul, will you be my prayer partner? Now don't skip the group by just cutting to me. All right. But I'm more than happy to be your prayer partner. You need to understand that I do this at four o'clock in the morning and I will expect you to do this at four o'clock in the morning too. Hashtag what? Don't ask Paul. Hashtag don't ask Paul. <laughs> also, we're going to work through the Sermon on the Mount together in this series. We've already started today. So I want you to read Matthew 5, 1 through 16. That's here. Okay? That's the part that we already read this morning. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16. Read that. Say the Lord's Prayer. Knowing that you're being obedient. And you're praying the way Jesus taught you to pray. And we'll move forward and we're going to see what God's going to do. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today 
and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can. Again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly, to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions. God bless.